This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. Our mission is to spread awareness of the message and divine beauty of the Quran across the world. Support our mission at www.bayina.org. That's B-A-Y-Y-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا بني إسرائيل اذكروا نعمتي التي أنعمت عليكم وأني فضلتكم على العالمين واتقوا يوما لا تجزي نفس عن نفس شيئا ولا يقبل منها عدل ولا تنفعها شفاعة ولا هم ينصرون وَإِذِ ابْتَلَى إِبْرَاهِيمَ رَبُّهُ بِكَلِمَاتٍ فَأَتَمَّهُنَّ قَالَ إِنِّي جَاعِلُكَ لِلنَّاسِ إِمَامًا قَالَ وَمِن ذُرِّيَّتِي قَالَ لَا يَنَالُ عَهْدِ الظَّالِمِينَ رَبِّ اشْرَحْ لِي صَدْرِي وَيَسِّرْ لِي أَمْرِي وَاحْلُلْ عُقْدَةً مِّن لِّسَانِي يَفْقَهُوا قَوْلِي فَالْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ وَالصَّلَاةُ وَالسَّلَامُ عَلَى رَسُولِ اللَّهِ وَعَلَى آلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ أَجْمَعِينَ once again, everyone, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We uh, begin today with the final ayah, or the final two ayat on uh, the narrative of the Israelites, 122 and 123. That's where the entire discussion on Banu Israel concludes. Ya Bani Israel, adhkuru ni'mati allati an'amtu alaykum wa anni faddaltukum ala al-alameen. So, uh, sons of Israel, make mention of the favor that I showered upon you and that I had given you preference over all nations and all peoples of the world. This is a, an ayah that completely, just absolutely mimics ayah number 47 of the same surah. This is actually of the 19 passages that the Israelites' discourse is made up of that I've d- delineated and defi- defined and organized in a previous session. This is number 19. That number 19 is just these two ayat the concluding discussion. And this is actually, uh, uh, in a sense, taking us back to the first passage. Of these 19 passages, the first passages also began, يَا بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلَ اذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةِ الَّتِي أَنْعَمْتُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَأَوْفُوا بِعَهْدِ أُوفِي بِعَهْدِكُمْ وَإِيَّا فَرْحَبُونَ That's where it began. Okay. Now that first passage, it was really interesting in that it, it began and ended with the same call. يَا بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلَ يَا بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلَ That's how it began and ended. And the summary of that first passage was they were being called, they were, the, their crime was being summarized as, and this is specifically the Jews of Medina, first of all they're being told, be grateful for the favors that were done to you in the past, and how you were given more favors than anybody else. I give you preference over all other nations, not just in that Allah gave them prophets and messengers, but Allah did them more favors than He did any other nation in, in history. So first they're made aware of their history. The second thing that they're being told is to accept this final revelation. Quran. And of all the people that should be accepting this revelation, they should be the first, and ironically, they shouldn't be the first to disbelieve in it. Then they're called out on their current state of affairs, which is you people, you know, you uh, are experts in the religion. You're, you're the people that know the Torah and the scripture, the Hebrew Bible more than anybody else. And, you know, it's kind of a a closed society, not everybody in the Jewish community knows what's the, the content of the Torah. It's the experts, the scholars, the, like we have in our tradition, the Mufassirun and the Fuqaha, those kinds of people. They know what's in the, in the text. And so you're in a very easy position to disguise the right thing with the wrong thing. Like tell people what you want to tell them and not actually what's in the book. So he says, Don't disguise truth with falsehood and thereby hide the truth. And so in saying that specifically to the religious leadership, what's being highlighted is they're in a position to interpret the religion and manipulate people any way they see fit. And Allah is calling them to fight against that tendency. And so that entire passage in summary, that first passage, is simply calling them to do one thing. First of all, acknowledge that there are a lot of favors have been done to them. And now it's time for them to truly show gratitude by accepting the final revelation and leave their corrupt practices behind. This is a call more than anybody else. It's, I know it says, Ya Bani Israel, sons of Israel, all of them. But as you study the crimes particularly, the, there's primary audience and secondary audience. The primary audience is in fact the rabbis of the Israelites. And then the secondary audiences are the congregations who blindly follow them. Okay? Now what happens here at the end is that by, by mimicking the same exact ayah and revealing in the, in the order at the end again, we're almost reminded, now I want you to think back to where we started. And revisit this question. 
But it's incredible that now, even though it's the same exact words, it has a different meaning. And that's the first thing I'd like to highlight to you about this ayah. When Allah says, make mention of the favors I've done to you, had He mentioned any favors before? No. This is the first thing He said to them, make mention of the favors I've done to you. And then came the list, I rescued you from the Pharaoh and you know, the cloud and the, 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 you know, the rock that gave out springs and all of it, right? And so first, what favor? What do you mean favor? And then there's a list of favors. By the end of it all, when he says, Israelites, make mention of the favor, they already know which favor. Why? Because it's all been listed. But question is, where has it been listed? In the Quran. It's so amazing that the Israelites are being told, the only way to mention my favor to you is to actually become reciters of Quran. It's so beautiful. That they're being called to the Qur'an in this way. This phrase even, اُذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةِ alaykum is actually اِقْرَأُوا Qur'an to them now. Let's read the Qur'an, study the Qur'an. The other beautiful thing here to, to note is uh, the use of the word ni'mah, the singular. اُذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةِ Mention my favor, one, that I showered you with. One favor, there was a list of like a thousand favors. There's so many favors. Why is he saying one favor? You know? And... When you take stock of what's been said throughout, the ultimate favor to them is that they, despite all of their mis- misdoings, get to be the audience to the Qur'an and the Prophet The grand favor of all the favors is that you, you're in the audience of Allah's final word. Even though you violated Allah's word previously. There's so many reasons to disqualify you, but you get to be the generation that hears Allah's word yet again. And I address you once one more time. So of all the favors, and they all apply, because you know the singular in the Arabic language, what's, it can also be used in a sense called ism jins. Ism jins means an entire class or entire category. So for instance, when we say in English, um, you know, man is unfaithful or something. Or man is forgetful. That's not a reference to one man. It's a comment about mankind. But the word man is singular, one person, right? Similarly, the word favor, it can be interpreted as all favors, you know? But it can also have this meaning of a very singular. So it's kind of got that duality in meaning. So in the sense that it's singular favor, I would argue that the most compelling case is that of the Qur'an itself and the Prophet's presence before them, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Uh, and that the same Jibreel that they're enemies to, which was at the center of this passage, is the same Jibreel that's giving them the words through Allah, Ya Bani Israel, like, um, you're enemies to me and I'm giving you the favor of guidance. That's, you be grateful for what's, what's being given to you. And that, then the other interesting thing here is, and that I had favored you over all other nations. That phrase also, Anni faddaltukum al alameen, has a dual meaning. In the beginning, it's a reference to what happened in history. Historically, so many, no nation received what you received. And now, it's as though the past tense here is suggesting, now the favor is done. I used to favor you over all other nations. Like it's done with now. It's the case is closed. You better, you better get your act together and the case is closed. Something I probably should have highlighted in the very beginning that I'll make mention of now, is even the use of Ya Bani Israel, as opposed to Ya Yahud, you know, Ya Ahl Al-Kitab, people of the book. But uh, instead of saying, Ya Bani Israel, sons of Israel, clearly what they're being called on to remember themselves as is their lineage, right? Children of Israel. And Israel's other name, if you don't know, is Yaqub. Yaqub's father is, anyone know? Yaqub's father is Ishaq. And Ishaq's father is Ibrahim, right? Now, on the one hand, revelation was given to the children of Ishaq. And through Ishaq, Yaqub, which is Israel, and through Israel, then you get the Banu Israel. On the other side of Abraham's lineage, Ibrahim Alayhi lineage is Ismail. And through Ismail's lineage, you get the Prophet Muhammad So you would think that on the one hand, you have the children of Israel, and on the other hand, you have the children of Ismail. That's the contrast, right? Children of Israel, children of Ismail. That's not the contrast in the Quran. Are, are the Muslims ever called children of Ismail? No. But interestingly, we are called... We, we are addressed as, your father was Ibrahim. Millata abikum Ibrahim. Like the only prophet that's ever been referred to, not just as a prophet to us, but a father to us, is Ibrahim alayhi salam. Now that's important to understand as far as lineage. Because the Israelites, when Allah calls them, He calls them to remember their father Israel. And when He calls the Muslims, He calls them to remember their father who? Ibrahim. That's the contrast. We're actually, if anything, we're children of Ibrahim. He's our father. 
That's, that's what the Qur'an's call is. But then it seems like, on the one hand, the grandson was referenced, and on the other hand, the grandfather was referenced. Right? And the Jews are also children of Ibrahim, aren't they? So why just refer them to as children of Israel? And we are children of Ismail in a sense, because that's where the lineage begins for the Prophet and all of that. But he takes us back to Ibrahim So what's the benefit in doing that? It's actually in a sense to remind us that we have to think of our identity, like identity comes from the father. The Muslims have to think of their identity tied to Ibrahim As Just as the Jews thought of their identity tied to who? Israel. Like that's how they identify themselves. That's their father figure. Just even in your personal life, how much does a father have an effect on a child's personality and their sense of identity, right? Their last name. That's, it's a part of who you, it's an inseparable part of who you are. But if you reflect on that, just that notion, that Ibrahim salam is in fact our father, then our identity as Muslims is actually shaped very much at its core by his personality. And that's really amazing. Because the Israelites were a specific nation, right? They're the lineage of a specific father. But Ibrahim salam didn't stay in one place. He travels around. And he's not even concerned about one nation. He's just, everywhere he goes, he's taking Allah's message. And then there are prophets that are coming to destroy even the nation of Lut that has nothing to do with Ibrahim. And he's arguing with those angels not to punish the people of Lut. In other words, clearly he is concerned about who? All of humanity. The Israelites were concerned about who? themselves. Ibrahim, however, was concerned with all of humanity. And we are the children, not of Ismail, but the children of Ibrahim. If we, if we were called children of Ismail, that would actually, in a sense, mean that we are concerned with the Arab peoples. And if once we call ourselves children of Ibrahim, Millata abikum Ibrahim, we're actually just like Ibrahim I'm concerned with all of humanity. So the scope, the way we identify ourselves, what we're concerned with, way more broadened. I had given you preference previously over all other nations, but this is, this is going to be different now. So this is the concluding uh, discussion on the Israelites and how it's now wrapping up. But then that's the other beautiful, beautiful thing that um, I didn't get a chance to highlight before. And I think it's so important in the study of the Qur'an. To, to, like, in my studies, there are sometimes there are insights inside of ayat. You, you, know, you realize something as you're studying and you make note of it. And there are certain principles and principles are like, you know, in a building, there are pillars that are holding up a building. There are certain principles in the study of the Qur'an that when you become aware of them, then your study just changes. And this is one of those principles that I'd like to highlight to you. What are the Jews actually in the study of the Qur'an? Especially these 182 or so ayat, what are they? They're a nation that lost their, um, their way after having an elaborate tradition in religion. They had book, they had law, they had fiqh, they had aqidah, they had tafsir, they had, they had it all. They had ulama, they had you know, ijazat, they had the entire system of tradition. That's what they had. But over time it deteriorated and deteriorated and deteriorated and what was left was some rituals that were empty and people didn't really know why they were doing what they were doing and there were fatawas in all different kinds of directions. If I were to give you an, an analogy to help you visualize that, what Allah gave them was this beautiful building. This Islam was this beautiful building that Allah gave them. And over thousands of years, this building deteriorated, and now it looks like ruins. It, it's still a structure, but it's hideous, it's ugly, it's got leaks, it's falling apart all over the place. That's what they became. And, but still, it is a building, and it originally was an amazing thing. It's got historical value. And the heirs of that building, generations later, are being told, you know, this was one of the most amazing buildings of its time. You should restore it. Right? You should restore that building. It's, it deserves it. It's, a, it's so phenomenal. It was at the heart of you know, uh, the, the people. Like, you know, imagine if people didn't care, take care in a, in a nation's capital or something like, like the Washington Monument or something like that. They didn't take care of it. And generations later, if they have a revived sense of identity, the first thing they would do is what? Restore that. Like what they do in Europe, right? These, uh, in France, for example, there are constantly renovations going on of the buildings from Napoleon's time. Like they're constantly renovating them. Why? Because they just that's their identity. The, the faith that they were given was their identity. Now, I, the reason I painted this elaborate picture is to give you one of those, those pillars that I was referring to in Quranic studies. Like, one thing that you have to have to hold on to. If you have a nation that was a nation of faith, that were given law, that were given revelation, and they lost their way over time, 
And they just became like empty rituals and they don't really know what the religion truly is about. And they've deteriorated in all kinds of ways and they're fighting one another and they're hating on each other. And that's what they've become. That's what the Israelites had become. And they're dispersed and scattered and they take some parts out of context and other parts they completely, dis- you know, completely ignore, et cetera, et cetera. Like this is what they've become. By the way, I'm painting this picture and I'm hoping you realize it doesn't sound like I'm describing Jews. Right? That's why I'm describing it this way. That's what happened to them. How do you take a people that have so gone down the drain so bad, how do you bring them back? Well, how does the Qur'an plan to bring the Israelites back? The Qur'an says, step one, call them by the lineage that gives them a sense of identity. Ya Bani Israel. What would that be to us? What would be our lineage? Our heritage that gives us a core sense of identity. What father figure? Yeah. The first thing you got to do is bring you back to who Ibrahim is. If you want to fix the ummah again, you got to go back to Ibrahim The second thing is, Make mention of the favor I did on you. How did Allah make... Well, the, the idea of the favor Allah did for them was, of course, they, they crossed the water with the Pharaoh. You know, He gave them you know, a cloud in the desert. Uh, he gave them manna and salwa. He gave them the springs of water. These are the things he gave them. But how did he describe that to them? He described that to them through the Quran, didn't he? Quran became a list of the favors that were given to them. Guess what? For us, the ultimate, they crossed the water. Our messenger crossed the desert from Makkah to Medina, didn't he? The enemy was after him, just like Pharaoh was after Musa. And they crossed, and then they became a nation that were given law. Musa went crossed the water, they were in the desert, and then Allah gave them the law. Then the Torah was revealed. Rasul crosses the desert, and he gets to Medina, and what does Allah give him? Sharia. Halal and haram. That wasn't revealed in Mecca, that was given to him in... So are there parallels here? Yeah. And these parallels are important because that journey, and that, that, that entire like, story, the, the powerful story of the Prophet there's no better place that captures the story of the Prophet ﷺ than the Qur'an. The Qur'an is actually the most beautiful seerah text. That's what, actually what it is. It's the story of the Qur'an. And the, the, the Qur'an is the story of the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet's life is the story of the Qur'an. They're each other's story. Now what happens is there are some surahs in the Qur'an that have... <laughs> like if you study them, you're like... Is this a commentary about me? Or is this talking about something that happened in the Prophet's life? It's an elaborate description of what happened in Badr. Like exhaustive description of exactly what happened in Badr. Exhaustive commentary of what happened in Uhud, for example. A detailed description of what happened in Hudaybiyah. A detailed description of what happened at, you know, with Banu Quraidah in Surah Al-Hashr. Why? And this is so specific. If the Qur'an just wants to give you general rules, here are, here's the, you know, the, the code of ethics for war. Here's what you must do, here's what you must not do. That, you can do that, right? And then just that's revealed and that's what we do. But the Qur'an is actually commenting on very specific incidents. Very, very specific incidents. Yes, and we study those incidents and then we say, let us drive universals from it. But think about this philosophically for a second. Why not just give us the universals? Why make us go through the incident and then pull out the, the lessons. Why do we have to go through the incident to begin with? Part of the guidance of a nation that will deteriorate is they have to relive the struggle of their prophet. They have to review the struggle of their prophet. The Jews were made to review the struggle of who? Musa salam. The struggle of the righteous people among them. We, every time you study the Qur'an from beginning to end, there are parts of it where you have no choice but to review the life of Rasulullah wasallam. What does that do? It actually makes you f- grateful for the favor you've been given. Because when they made that hijrah, that, and on when, they made, when they did Hudaybiyah, and when they fought Hunayn, and when they did this or that or the other, that's the reason I get to be a Muslim today. It makes me grateful for what I have. The Jews that were being talked to in Medina did not cross the water. They just live in Medina. That happened thousands of years ago. What does he say to them? فَرَقْنَا بِكُمْ الْبَحَرِ we crossed the you crossed the water. We made you cross the water. But that's not you, that's your ancestors. Yeah, but when the way Allah describes history, He makes you feel like you're there. Allah is making you and me feel like we're there in the seerah of the Prophet. That's one of the goals of the Quran. 
we started looking looking at the Quran so legalistically that every time we look at an ayah, we say, what can what's the fatwa that we can derive from this, or what's the theological principle that we can derive from this? One of its fundamental goals was to actually connect us to that original struggle. And that's guidance. That on its own is guidance. When people start reliving the life of the Prophet ﷺ through the Book of Allah and mentioning the favor that Allah had done on us, now we start mentioning the favor Allah had done on us, then we're going to start becoming restored. This is guidance, by the way. This is a piece of you know guidance, guidance through this through an appreciation of history, guidance through history, like reliving history, not just knowing history, reliving it, T- crying those tears with them. Fearing those fears with them. Your hearts had reached into your throats and you were thinking all kinds of things. You're reading that about Ahzab and you're like, it's like you're standing there and the armies are approaching and you're terrified. He makes you relive it. Now that's guidance through history and appreciation of history. And what's the next thing? If you know, you know how they say this, you know, cheesy saying, you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you came from. Kind of thing, you know. You can't really understand your future if you don't understand your past. What Allah do in this? These two succinct ayat. In one ayah, it's the past. Make mention of the favor I already did to you. The way I preferred you over all other nations. That gives you a sense of history. What does the next ayah do? What shay'an. Be cautious of a day on which nobody will benefit anybody else. That's your future. What What's the thing that will give us guidance in the future? Judgment Day. Judgment Day is guidance. For the past, it's the history that Allah recorded forever in Qur'an. For the future, it's a constant reminder of Judgment Day. And so both of those have been put together. And either one of them, at the expense of the other, or without due diligence to the other, creates a kind of imbalance. There are people, all they concern themselves with is the afterlife. And they forget about where they're, you know, what this history is, and how, it's, how do you prepare for the afterlife? You have to look at what happened in the past. And there are people who only revel in their... That's what happened to the Jews. They only thought about their history and, and a skewed picture of their history and became self-righteous and think that, thought that they have nothing to concern themselves with in terms of meeting Allah in the afterlife. You know? this Both of those concerns hand-in-hand hand together is the balance of Qur'an. So anyway, so, وَاتَّقُوا يَوْمًا Be cautious of a day. لَا تَجْزِي نَفْسٌ عَنْ نَفْسٍ شَيْءٍ And no person will be able to compensate any other person. وَلَا يُقْبَلُ مِنْهَا عَدْلٌ and uh, ransom will not be accepted. وَلَا تَنْفَعُهَا شَفَاعَةٌ Nor will intercession be taken. وَلَا هُمْ يُنْصَرُونَ Nor will they, they're not the ones that are going to be aided. This ayah is also a mirror of ayah number 48, except the sequence is a bit different. And so I'll make a few comments about that. Uh, the first of them is in ayah number 48, where this whole thing began, Allah reminded them of Judgment Day, but the way He reminded them was... Two things won't judgment day, nobody will help anybody else. Nobody can pay for anybody else. That's number one. Number two, no intercession shall be accepted. Now intercession is a big word, so I'll replace it with a smaller word, a plea. No plea will be accepted. No attorney will be accepted. Nobody to come in the, in the middle and say, could you go easy on him? He's, he's, you know, he had it rough. Just somebody to stand between you and the judge. That's usually in, in courts, it's a lawyer, right? Or it's some, somebody who has a connection. That one will not be there. No intercession will be accepted. Nor will any ransom be taken. Now, that sequence is important to understand. That's the first sequence. It's important to understand because it's a very simple psychological sequence. When somebody's committed a crime and they're about to be taken in front of the judge, they would be smart to have someone speak on their behalf, usually some kind of a lawyer or somebody else, right? That would be a shafir. That would be someone who makes a case on your behalf. Now if you have no lawyer or nobody, that, or it wasn't accepted, the lawyer wasn't, was thrown out. And now you're just, it's just you and the judge. Now you have two things. Either you're going to do jail time or pay the fine. What would be your option? Jail time or fine? What would you go with? The fine, right? Your first option was the lawyer will get me out of here. Your second option is at least I'll pay a fine. What does Allah do? When he says, لَا يُقْبَلُ مِنْهَا شَفَاعَةٌ Intercession will not be accepted. Basically, lawyer's no good. Lawyer's no good. What was your second hope? The fine. لَا يُقْبَلُ وَلَا يُقْخَلُ مِنْهَا عَدْلٌ There's no fine that's going to be accepted. No, comp- no ransom will be taken. 
then the only thing left is punishment. Because the two things that could have gotten you out of it are gone. And then as you're being dragged away and you're screaming, somebody help! Can somebody bust me out of jail? So anyone! They're not the ones that are going to be aided. That's the, that's the picture in the beginning. And this is important to note because they thought that even if we do get in trouble with God, yeah, the prophets will come and speak on our behalf. We had more prophets than anybody. The Torah will come and speak on our behalf. The angels will testify on our behalf. They'll vouch for us. Even Quran says angels will vouch for us on judgment day. نَحْنُ أَوْلِيَاكُمْ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ They're awliya in the akhirah too. Why not? But then as these, these you know, 80 samayat are revealed, and it is demonstrated that the prophets you think will come for you, ain't coming, because you messed up with the prophets. And you became enemies to the angels. And the book you changed and violated. So if anything, they'll testify against you, not for you. By the end, the order of this language has changed. Allah says, لَا يُقْبَلُ مِنْهَا عَدْلٌ No ransom will be accepted. When you say the first thing, by the way, you better watch out because no ransom, no fee will be accepted. It's like the lawyer's out of the question. Isn't it? Because it's already been established, the ones that were going to come defend you, they're not going to defend you. If anything, they'll testify against you. So then the first sort, the first, first resort for you is actually the ransom, the fee. You know? And so you say, Allah says, وَلَا يُقْبَلُوا مِنْهَا عَدْلٌ In this ayah, He says, no compensation, no fee, you know, no fine shall be taken. وَلَا تَنْفَعُهَا شَفَعُونَ And somebody coming on your behalf is of no benefit anyway for you. I mean, at this point, that should be obvious to you. لَا تَنْفَعُهَا شَفَعُونَ That's why تَنْفَعُوا even the, the word benefit. Because the, 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 the shafa'a that could have benefited has been eliminated. وَلَهُمْ يُنْصَرُونَ They're not going to be helped anyway. And so as this wraps up, I'll bring you to the last ayah of, of today's discussion. Uh, just a couple of things about it, inshallah. And we'll have a more elaborate discussion. Maybe, maybe I'll finish this. Maybe it'll take about 15 minutes. Bear with me, inshallah. We'll, we'll get through this. Allah began the surah. And there are the, the first major story was the story of Adam alayhi salam. The second story is the Israelites. The third story is Ibrahim. Yeah? It's pretty cool because it began with the story of a father, then the story of children of Israel, and he goes back to what? Father. Ibrahim is a father. And then it's going to be our ummah, who are his children. Right? So <laughs> the sequence is father, children, father, children. It, it, it progresses that way. Okay? So now we're at the second, and then the other thing is, this sequence, father, children, father, children, has another remarkable element to it. The first story was who again? Adam. The second story was? Israelites. The third story is? Ibrahim. And the last story, last account is Muslims, ourselves. All four are tested. Was Adam tested? Were the Israelites tested? Was Ibrahim tested? Are we going to be tested? Yeah, We're going to be testing you with all kinds of stuff. Literally, that's what he's going to say. Okay, now check this out. All four are, what do they have in common? They're all tested. Now go back. Adam a.s. passed or failed the test? Failed the test. But then recovered. Because you can fail a test and recover by repenting. Because that's what he did, right? Second group. Passed or failed the test? The Israelites. Failed the test. And recovered or No. No, and they didn't repent. Failed, and then failed squared. Okay? The third group is, the third story is who? Ibrahim A.S. Passed the test or failed the test? Passed with flying colors. He passes with flying colors. You've got three scenarios. You've got someone who's tested and failed and then recovered. You've got someone who tested and failed and didn't recover. And you've got someone who was tested and f- passed with flying colors. And then who's mentioned? Us. And we're about to be tested. And now we're being told there's only three possibilities for you guys. Because we're not told if we pass or fail. We're just, you're going to be tested. So you're, you could go the road of Adam, which means you will fail sometimes and you better do what? Repent. You might end up going down the road of the Israelites, fail the test, and then revel in that like glorious failure and not repent and let it stink it up. Or you can be like Ibrahim salam and pass the tests with flying colors to begin with. And by the way, I expect you to pass because you are children of 
so boss, so cool. That's that's how this is ordered, you know, how the themes are progressing in the surah. Anyway, Ibrahim alayhi salam, let's first talk about his name. When Ibrahim was tested thoroughly, and Ibrahim, like no other, was tested thoroughly by his master. The word Ibrahim, according to Hebrew scholars, comes from three parts. Ab, Rab, Ham. They break the, the word up into three syllables. Ab, Rab, and Ham. And the word Rab, not like Rab in Arabic. Uh, Rab in, in Hebrew means chief or captain or leader. And they make that short and drop the second Ba and just make it Ra. So instead of Rab, it's pronounced Ra. And that's why you get a Abraham. It was actually Abraham and became Abraham like that. That's how that's its etymology in the original language. Ab means father. The Ra part means leader. And Ham means many. The father who is the leader of many. That's the actual meaning of Ibrahim. The father who is the leader of many. Okay. Now that's a pretty epic name. Because, and by the way, did the Arabs know that meaning? No. Because it's not an Arabic word. Ibrahim is not an Arabic word. So, when you look at this ayah that we're, we're looking at, Surah Ayah number 124, what does Ibrahim mean again? The father who leads many. Okay. قَالَ إِنِّي جَاعِلُكَ لِلنَّاسِ imama. Allah said, I'm going to make you a leader over all people. Is that his meaning? Is that what his name means? Leader over people? Allah literally translated his name in the ayah. And you wouldn't know that until you studied the etymology of the word. And he's done that for from the study of Abdul Rauf, 60 names. 60 names that Arabs did not know the meanings of have been translated in the Quran in an ayah. Like he'll mention the name and then translate it. Actually, later on, it's Ismail too. Ismail is not an Arabic name. It's Ishmael. Yeshmael, that's the original. And that's also Hebrew. And Yeshma actually means like Yasma'u in Arabic. It's close to the Hebrew. What's Yasma'u? To listen. Il is the equivalent of Allah. Yasma'ullahu. What does that mean? Allah listens. Ismail was born. Ibrahim was in shock that he had a child at such an old age. He said, Ishmael, Allah listens. And that became his name. Yeah. And that, so his name is Allah listens. And check it out. Later on, they're going to build the foundations of the Kaaba. He's building the house with Ismail. Ya Allah, you listen. I got proof right here. <laughs> His name is translated in the ayah. So Ibrahim's name is also here translated. That's a side note about just the etymology of the word. So, so beautiful. Then you have um, the word ibtila. Amazing word of the Arabic language. Lughatul al-dad. A word that could mean itself and its exact opposite. Balahu uh, in Arabic could mean imtahanahu, ikhtabarahu, to test somebody. Bala can mean a test. Ibtila could mean a very difficult test. Balahu ta'ti kathalik bima'na an'amahu. Arabic students could tell me what an'ama means. To bless. To bless. Like surat al-ladhina an'amta alayhim. Like that. Ibtala Ibrahim rabbuhu could mean two things at the same time. Ibrahim, his master thoroughly tested Ibrahim and greatly blessed Ibrahim. This is the common word used in the Qur'an for tests, by the way, bala. It's not the only word, but it's the common one. And it's incredible that Allah uses that, because in using it, He has taught us a philosophy of tests and trials. Trials to Allah are always a blessing. They're actually two sides of the same coin. Somebody's trial is somebody else's blessing, or even their own blessing down the future. And there's no greater example of that than Ibrahim a.s. When Ibrahim a.s. is about to slaughter his son, he has no idea that that's a blessing. All he could see at that point is that's a trial. That's a test. 
When he's about to be thrown into a fire, all he sees is a test, he doesn't see a blessing. But when Ibrahim is about to slaughter his son, and then Allah says, قَدْ الرُّؤْيَا And then that tradition of sacrifice is inaugurated. And to this day, every time an animal is slaughtered, and every time somebody takes a single bite of any of the animals that are slaughtered, who gets the blessings of that? Ibrahim For all those thousands of years. For all those thousands of years. It's him. There's not a single person who's ever done Hajj that Ibrahim didn't get the reward for. Uh, it's, it's overwhelming to think about. Like The tests are massive, but what they covered behind them were enormous what? Blessings. Enormous, enormous blessings. The, take a step forward and you find like because I teach a lot of uh, Hudaybiyah right so just even think about one aspect of Hudaybiyah those people that went with the Prophet to perform Hajj and didn't get to do it they didn't get to do it and they came back they were super frustrated they bled they were almost killed on several occasions they were hum- humiliated they saw Abu Jandal their own brother grabbed by the head bleeding and in chains dragged back from between them back into a prison cell in Mecca, and they could do nothing about it. And, then and these are the people they fought in Badr and Uhud and Azab, and they can't touch Abu Jandal being tortured like that by his own dad. And they're walking right through them. And they're walking like frustrated. And, but that, them not being able to do Hajj that year is the reason we do Hajj. You know they slaughtered the animals that year? And they fed the animals to the mushrikun? Abu Jandal just... Dragged by his father, back. And then the Muslims are told, because you, when you finish Hajj, you slaughter the animals. We're leaving. You have to slaughter them now. They slaughter the animals. They can't take the meat back. Eid Mubarak, Mushrikun of Makkah. Not only did you just humiliate us and not let us do Hajj, all these animals that we walked from Medina are going to be given to you. And then we go back. You know when you eat like meat from Eid, right? Like the reason we get to eat that meat is because they didn't get to. Like their trial became our blessing. You understand? It's incredible that, and I would argue that no person has ever done Hajj since that those people didn't get reward for. Them not doing Hajj is the reason we do Hajj. <laughs> incredible. So if the, I, the, the philosophy of trials in our religion and that's even at a personal level. You, you and I go through trials. Our trials are a blessing. No matter what it looks like, they're a blessing. But the question is, how is it a blessing? It may be a blessing for you in a way that you don't yet understand. And in, a, in, in the future in a way that you don't understand. Or it may not be a blessing for you right now at all. It may be a blessing a thousand years later for somebody else. It may be a blessing for people you'll never ever meet. What Ibrahim did, isn't that a blessing for people he's never ever met? From all over the world? In languages he'll never speak? (laughs) You can't limit how it's a blessing. Or who it's a blessing for. But no, it's a blessing. Every trial is. So he says, and Ibrahim is muqaddam, you'll notice Ibrahim is mansub, and it's muqaddam, it's before the words rabbuhu. So it suggests, when Ibrahim a.s. was tested by his master like no other, bikalimatin with just some words. Allah tested him with just words. And I love this phrase, kalimatin, because usually in Quran you say kalimatillah, the words of Allah, kalimatihi. Okay? Or kalimati rabbi. It's mudaf to something. It's always like words of my master, words of Allah, his words. Here's just some words. And this is an echo of something that occurred previously in the surah, فَتَلَقَّى آدَمُ مِنْ رَبِّهِ كَلِمَاتٍ فَتَابَ عَلَيْهِ Adam came into contact with some words. And those words were the reason his tawbah was accepted. Now that same words are coming again. And when there we thought about words, those words must have been a dua that he asked Allah to forgive. Those were the words and that's why Allah forgave him. Now we're learning words from Allah could actually be a trial and that'll get you forgiven. The trial may be, the blessing in a trial may be, it's the reason you got forgiven. You're, you're in forgiveness to it. An easy example of that is sickness, isn't it? Sickness is a trial. What does the Prophet say about it, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? 
Tahur, inshallah. No problem. It's a purifier. By if if Allah were to will, right? So that's the idea of kalimatin instructions that were given. And the other ambiguity about it is some of his trials, he didn't even realize their trials. He sees a dream that he's slaughtering his son. He's not sure what that is. He sees it again. He sees it again. Then he goes to his son and says, "Inni arafil manami and the I see in my dream that I'm slaughtering you. His son doesn't say, "Dad, do what you see." If alma tara, he says, "If alma tu'mar, do what you're told." The son says, actually, what you're seeing is a command, dad. Let me take the ambiguity away. It is a command. So it was general, kalimatin, and then it became specific. فَأَتَمَّهُنَّ Here, the, the translation would be, he fulfilled all of them. The first thing I'd like to highlight here is the word hunna. Uh, it's actually expected to say ha, فَأَتَمَّهَا It's non-human. But Allah says, hunna tafkhiman, Meaning, those were not small instructions. He completed, oh my God, he completed all of them. Like that them is a big deal because there, were, there weren't small instructions. There were not easy things to, to fulfill. The other interesting thing I'd like you to note is there are two words for completion in the Qur'an that occur commonly. Uh, there's akmala and atamma. Like al-yawma akmaltu lakum dinakum wa atmamtu alaykum ni'mati wa raditu lakum al-islam There's itmam and ikmal. Okay? But the difference between them linguistically is kamal or ikmal is about a timeline. Okay? So if, for example, you completed the three-month course, which means you studied the entire three months, this is akmaltahu. Okay? So completing something that takes time, that's the idea of kamal or ikmal. That's why we say, for example, it's really cool, the ayah about you know, uh, um, mothers, how long should they feed their children? وَالْوَالِدَاتُ يُرْدِعْنَا أَوْلَادَهُنَّ حَوْلَيْنِ كَامِلَيْنِ كَامِلَيْنِ لِمَنْ أَرَادَ أَنْ يُتِمَّ الرَّضَعَةِ Kamil? يُتِمَّ What does that mean? Mothers should feed two whole, two whole years. Two whole years. Time period, right? So the word whole or complete is كَامِلَيْنِ To fulfill the... You know, for anyone who wants to complete and perfect... The requirement of feeding yutimma arradaa. So let me tell you the meaning of atamma now. Kamil or akmala has to do with the time, fulfilling the time requirement. Atamma is to perfect something. Every brick that was missing in the wall has been added in. Every patch that needed painting has been painted. When you finish a job and there's no shortcomings left and it's done to perfection, that's called atamma. Okay, that's atamma. Everybody can finish the exam in an hour. Akmalna limtihan. But not everybody's gonna perfect the exam. Atmamna limtihan. You get it? Somebody who like killed the exam, perfect score, they didn't. Lam yukmilhu bal atammahu. He didn't complete it as in he just finished the test. Somebody who didn't fill much out or just X, Y, X, Y, X, Y and handed it in. They also did ikmal, but they didn't do itmam. Okay? So he says, Atammahunna here to suggest every single test he was given. He fulfilled it to perfection. He didn't just see it through to the end. Because you know when a trial comes, when a difficulty comes to you and me, it's come for a limited time, right? Maybe a year, maybe a day, maybe an hour, whatever the trial period is. You got through it, akmaltahu, but I don't know if you kind of, you know, you could go through it like with flying colors, or you could have like messed up royally along the way, and like, oh, at least I got through it somehow. Like... <laughs> Allah says, atammahunna. He fulfilled them to perfection. No hesitation. Qala, and then Allah says, Qala inni ja'iluka linnasi imama. Here, please pay attention. There are two things to note. They're incredible. One meaning of I am make, I certainly I have made you for all people, without exception. That's why it's muqaddam. For all people a leader. And I'll interpret leader in a bit. But that statement that he's, he's made Ibrahim a leader over all people can mean two things. In this ayah, linguistic, grammatically, it can mean two things. And they're both incredible. One meaning, commonly taken, is he passed all these tests. And what is the badge of honor he gets at the end? You get to be the leader. You went through some incredible tests. Here's what you get. You get to be the leader. Here's the second meaning. What did Allah test him with? What does the ayah say? He tested him with what? Words. Right? Some interpret these are the words. Allah tested Ibrahim like he's never tested him before with the words, I have made you a leader. Uh, 
Like of all the tests he went through, the biggest of all of his tests was that he's made him a leader. That's the ultimate trial. <laughs> there's personal trials and then there's trials that you know that your failings are going to affect others. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, Imam. Imam comes from the word Ammaya Ummu, which means to have qasada, to have intent or purpose. Uh, and Ummah is a group of people unified by purpose, as opposed to a qawm or a qadiyah. They could be geographically unified or ethnically unified. But a, uh, an, an Ummah is unified by purpose. And Imam is someone who leads a people and gives them purpose and direction. When Ibrahim alayhi salam, by the way, that's literally the case with the Imam who leads the prayer, right? He determines our direction. He also determines our course of action. Like, what should we be doing and when is determined by the Imam. Ibrahim alayhi salam is called Imam and the, the profound statement, you know, as opposed to Uswa, you know, a role model, right? That's used for the Prophet What that suggests, what the implications it has, and it's, it's going to be important to note because a few ayat later, we're going to be called an Ummah. وَمِن ذُرِّيَّتِنَا Ummatan, Muslimatan nak. Same origin, same root origin. He's the Imam and we're the Ummah. That means that the sense, the sense of direction for the Ummah, the spirit of the Ummah, the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about the world around us should be framed by our Imam, which is Ibrahim alayhi salam. And he is concerned and for giving that sense of purpose to all people. In nasi imama. Qala wa min He ingeniously says, and from my children, when you say from my children as opposed to saying about my children, huge difference. An about my children. Min from my children. Tab'idan, like Ibn Ashur says. What, what, what would that mean? That means that he's not asking for all of his kids. He says he recognizes that you can't have all your children be leaders. But so long as some of them are, they'll help lead the others. So he very ingeniously asks, Min dhurriyati. Dhurriya is not just children, that's abna or awlad. Dhurriya actually means generations upon generations upon generations to come. Like descendants. What about my descendants down the road? This ayah is so heavy. First of all, we're thinking, we should think about Islam like Ibrahim alayhi salam. That's what I'm trying to get at, right? All the time. Now, we're, now you're learning, we should think about leadership like Ibrahim alayhi salam. If you really become, think like Ibrahim alayhi salam in terms of leadership, you never think about leadership right now. What do you think about? What do you think about? Who is that? A hundred years from now. Two hundred years from now. Three hundred years from now. Our children's, 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 children. How do you leave something that will benefit them? You know, the ummah today is on fire. So many places, there is in a state of emergency. Don't think of an entire country in a state of emergency. Think of one house in a state of emergency. One house has a fire. When one house has a fire, what can you, what's the only thing you can think of? How do we put this fire out? How do we, that's all you can think of. You can't think of, how do we extend this house? You don't think of that. You don't think of, how do we make this neighborhood safer? How do you think of, how are we going to accommodate you know, more people as guests? You don't think of any of it. How do we improve the backyard? You can't think of any of that. All you can think of is, how do we put the fire out? The problem with the Ummah today is, we are in one fire after another, after another, after another, after another. And our questions and our concerns and our problems and our, our thoughts are always about putting out one fire, and the next, and the next, and the next. When it's not Syria, it's the Rohingya Muslims. When it's not the Rohingya Muslims, it's what's happening in Kashmir. When it's not Kashmir, it's, some, it's, just, it's just something or the other. And we're caught constantly putting out fires. And the thing about leadership is leadership, regardless of fires, has to take a step back and say what? Where are we, where are we heading a hundred years from now? Where are we going to be too... Like, Who's even thinking about the Ummah for the next hundred years? For the next five hundred years? We're just thinking, what's going to happen next year after the election? It's going to be bad. I think I'm moving to Canada. That's, we can't think ahead. We, we can't. And until we do, we're not, we don't know what leadership means like Ibrahim alayhi salam defined it. We just don't know. Now Allah gave him a, this is the last bit now. 
Ibrahim alayhi salam, okay, this is his greatest trial. But the other interpretation is, he passed all the greatest trials, and now Allah gives him this award that you get to be the leader. And even in that sense, if he's done so much for Allah, he's passed through so many tests with perfection, Allah says with perfection, you should be in some kind of a position to be able to ask stuff. After all, you ask Allah for stuff when you go to Hajj, or when you've prayed Tahajjud, or fasted, you know, Ashura or something. If you've done the extra thing, isn't that the time to ask? Like, the more you've done for Allah, the more you should be in a position to ask. Well, Ibrahim alayhi has done some incredible stuff, he should be in a position to ask. So he did, he said, what about my kids? And you would be hopeful that Allah will just, yeah, of course, you, anything. Take it, your kids, grandkids, you got it. You earned it, Ibrahim. Oh, great job. Because he's not asking anything else. And so when he asks this question, Allah says, لَا يَنَالُ عَهْدِي My promise does not extend to wrongdoers. Uh, that's kind of cold. After all the trials and all the perfect score passings, you ask one thing, and you've just been made leader over humanity. By the way, notice, he was made leader over human people, all people. He didn't say, can you give me leaders out of all people? He said, give me leaders out of where? My own kids. That's another concern about leadership. Before you can fix humanity, you have to fix your own generations. Your own. We start thinking there are geopolitical problems. There are problems in this region and that region. And eco- economics this and political science that. And our grandkids aren't praying. Like, Lindurieti, he's teaching us something. Leadership will come when you become concerned first with your own generations. That's your primary task. Now, Allah says, my promise doesn't extend to wrongdoers. What does that mean? Allah didn't say no. He didn't say no. He just said not to wrongdoers. Which means some of your children will have leadership. But there are other children that are going to be pretty messed up. And I will call them avalimin, wrongdoers. And my promise, what promise? By the way, promise here means... There's a promise I will give leadership. But I just won't give it to wrongdoers. Now the thing is, uh, who are the two main audiences of the Prophet? Think about this. The two main audience, the two main communities that are the audience of the Prophet, other than the Muslims. The Mushrikun of Mecca and the people of the book in Medina, isn't it? And of course, in in this surah, it's the Mushrikun of Mecca and the Jews. Those are the two audiences. The Mushrikun of Mecca consider themselves children of Ibrahim, yes or no? Yeah, they slaughter the animal every year because they think of themselves as children of Ibrahim. The people of the, the Jews consider themselves descendants of Abraham or no? They do. And Allah says, Ibrahim, I've made you leader over all mankind. Can my children have leadership? Some of them? Who currently has leadership? The Mushrikun of Mecca have leadership. And the Jews of Medina have leadership. They have two different kinds of leadership. The mushrikun of Mecca have leadership over the Kaaba. The Jews of Medina have religious leadership. Isn't it? Allah says leadership is not going to be extended to the wrongdoers. Who's the wrongdoer? Are they both wrongdoers? Are the mushrikun of Mecca wrongdoers? Yeah. Are the Jews of Medina wrongdoers? Yeah. And Allah says my guarantee of leadership does not extend to them is one statement Thousands of years ago, to Ibrahim alayhi salam, and in one statement, the Prophet is being told, Quraysh are not going to stay in power, and the Jews are not going to be the religious leadership of Medina. Because Ibrahim was told, they don't deserve it. These are the failed children of Ibrahim. In just one statement, one swoop. La yanalu ahdi abadimi. The last comment I want to make to you about um, this prayer is that, uh, Ibrahim alayhi salam, his words min dhurriyati suggest something. That we should make dua and we should concern ourselves with at least some of our children uh, prepped for leadership. Prepped to learn and teach the religion. Prepped to be role models to others. And not leadership, not in the sense that they're going to grab a mic. But in every family, there has to be some cousin, some brother, some sister, some aunt. That's the go-to for their deen. Somebody needs to be there. And the idea, when Dhurriyati suggests, there's, you know, you have like a hundred cousins and there's like one person that knows the religion. And then you have this eighth gathering and they're all asking him questions. Hey, so is chewing gum haram? Is this haram? Is that haram? 
Like, they do that, don't they? Because that's the, the one that has some education. Every family should actually think, yes, I have children, and some of them may not be very inclined towards the study of the religion or understanding it, and leading other people and guiding them in what is right and what is wrong. But those who have that aptitude, we must invest them in this. So every, every family has at least somebody every, among their dhurriya that can guide the rest. That's the genius of this dua. And then Allah says, by the way, even if you have that, there's still going to be wrongdoers. And no matter how much preaching you can do or teaching you can do, people that want to do wrong will do wrong. They're just going to do what they're going to do. And I'm not guaranteeing that they're going to be righteous just because they belong to that family. You know, and righteousness cannot be genetic. It can't be inherited. And so that's, that's the, the comment that's being made here. It's very, very profound about, like, especially in our time, right? Like, we constantly think we're living in a non-Islamic environment. How are we supposed to raise our children? I find that question rather absurd. I really do. The entire history of prophets is them living as minorities. Entire history. Living in highly un-Islamic so un-Islamic that God will destroy those nations. <laughs> That's where they're living. And believers are living there. The most stable, you can argue, society where like we were kind of, you know, the, 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 the prophetic model is in, in charge is Medina. Yeah? When the prophets, the governor of Medina, did you know that we were numerically a minority in Medina? We were not the majority. The seerah of the Prophet is the seerah of a man and his, belief, his followers that lived as a minority the entire time. And were surrounded by a, what you can argue, a toxic environment. Medina up until the 16th year of revelation had brothels, prostitution houses. Well documented. Surah An-Nur came down in that context. And I'm like, why do they have that? That's Medina. Munawwara. Like, who even because to have that stuff you have to have customers. Who are the customers? There's a there's a society in play. They do their thing. The Muslims are there too, and they're dealing with it. And they're still holding on to their Islam. So the you know for, for us to think that an, a, being in a certain country or in a certain place is somehow going to it's not. It's how you raise your kids. Like you raise your kids. How you are with your generations. That's what determines everything. You know? There, there, there are people, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen kids that have been brought and raised in a very Muslim country messed up. And I've seen kids raised in Oklahoma that are amazing. That, I mean, honestly, you know? It's, it was so wild to me that when I was in a Gulf country that shall not be named, um, no. It shall not be tamed, and it wasn't the way. Um, and they had they held a they held a question answer session with parents. I was like two hundred parents showed up. You know what their question was? How do we teach Islam to our kids like you guys do in America? I I am in the, I know I travel a lot. Maybe I lose track of where I am sometimes. I am in the Arab world right now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have any Islamic schools. What are, what, are, what are some Islamic school curriculum recommendations? What? Yeah. I was in another country that shall not be named. And the question was, a Muslim country, an extremely Muslim country, how do I teach my kids Halloween is wrong? And I'm... You have to teach your... Yeah, because, you know, we, they all go to American schools and British schools and they have all... Like, why are you... We are in America and Britain and we pluck our kids out of the school system and put them in dilapidated Islamic school buildings. <laughs> you are in the Muslim world and you pluck your kids out of Islamic environments and put them in American schools. You're awesome. <laughs> and you say they don't know how to pray yet. He's 16, he doesn't know how to pray yet. Fantastic. You know, the place does not determine what kind of parent you're going to be, what kind of environment. That's, that's all it is. We, we pray that Allah allows us to become parents, uh, good parents, and then 
that, that we are able to raise among our children those that can carry the banter of this deen. Barakallahu li wa lakum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Our mission is to spread awareness of the message and divine beauty of the Quran across the world. Support our mission at www.bayina.org. That's B-A-Y-Y-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G.